I Read Comics, show number 84. I didn't go to Comic-Con. Uh, Ginger went, but she didn't even go for most of the weekend. She went for the stuff before that. And there were like 125,000 people there. And I'm kind of glad I didn't go. Um, I also heard or read about how things sort of got taken over more than ever this year by the Hollywood people and the Twilight people, which also makes me glad that I didn't go. So... As I think I've said once before, I think I'll just stick to the Bay Area cons. And the next one that's coming up is APE, the Alternative Press Expo, which is in the middle of October in San Francisco. And they've already got some great people on the schedule, like Chris Ware and Phoebe Glockner, who I really, really like. And um, I have been meaning to talk about her books for a while. I just ordered a couple more. So I think I'll wait till I get them to talk about what she does. But she had some great stuff in one of the Twisted Sisters collection from many years ago, and I was incredibly impressed with her stuff then. So I'm happy that she's coming, and maybe I'll get a little time. And, of course, this time, since I have the iRiver and the microphones, any recordings that I do will be a lot higher quality than they were the first time I tried to record at Ape. So there's that. Um, I wanted to do some pimping, but not for me. This is for Leah Hernandez, or as she will soon be known, Leah Franco, because she's getting divorced and changing her name. And she was on the show. I interviewed her once before about what it's like to make comics. And she has decided to do her next comic thing online via web subscription, which I think is an awesome model. And she is still trying to get enough people to subscribe to it so that she can support herself just by doing this and some other work that she's got, but really trying to support herself doing this rather than doing work, comics work for other people. So I encourage everybody to go out and sign up because it's like $5 a month um, or what is that, $60 a year or something. And you're supporting her, which is great, and you get to see these cool comics that she's doing. So what it is called is uh, The Next Bit of Rumble Girls, and Rumble Girls was a series that she had done a while ago. You can get the graphic novel. It's on Amazon, still available. And this is called Runaway Lightning Omri. And it's only got, um, I don't know, maybe eight pages so far, but it's pretty cool. The way she's been posting them lately has been just the black and white art rather than the colored stuff because she said it was taking her too long to color everything in. So rather than make us all wait, she'll just do the art and color it in later. And she had posted some descriptions about what it was, so I'll just read you what she had said. A former Rumble Girl, Omri, has walked away from an industrial intelligence agency called Twig. Rumble Girl Thistleglow Pink thinks she's picking up her last Enteco paycheck for picking up Omri. But Twig goons Pry, Uno, and Relume have other plans. So that's the plot so far. This is being hosted at webcomicsnations.com, and if you want to find it, you can. I'll put the link in to the show notes, but it's webcomicsnation.com slash diva Leah, and Leah is spelled L-E-A. And I think this is a pretty good model. Um, the only thing that I don't like about it is that it doesn't get delivered to me. So I've talked before about how, uh, because I'm such a lazy person, 
even having to click, to remind myself to click a link to go check something is like kind of beyond my limited brain capacity. So I really like it when stuff is delivered directly to me. It's one of the reasons I like Blogline so much is that I can just log into my Blogline's account and, okay, I do have to do one click, but I don't have to go off the site to see what it is. So it would be really cool if, you know, you subscribed to um, a bunch of different web comics and there was an aggregator that could bring all of them together in a format that was really easy to read. And I know I had talked about one once before, and I kind of stopped using it because it didn't have as many of the web comics as I wanted to. And frankly, I can't even remember what it's called. Um, but I, I would like things delivered to me because I am a very, very lazy consumer. Um, I'm wondering if I'm going to get into reading more webcomics more often because I'm getting a new computer with a bigger screen. I've been using my little teeny uh, 12-inch power book now for God only knows how long, coming up on four years, I guess. And it's really hard to read on that size screen. So maybe with the 15-inch screen, um, I'll have a little more tolerance for reading, and it won't make my head hurt just to look at it. But I'm wondering if this is going to be the way things are going, whether it's just going to be subscriptions on the web or just subscriptions to the comics that you want to have delivered to you, and that could be in many different forms. You know, it might be um, on your Kindle or on whatever is going to replace the Kindle eventually, you know, electronic paper, or whether it will still be actual wood paper that gets delivered to you. But it seems to me that people are really, really used to and liking the automatic delivery thing. And uh, as much as I love the comic book store, especially Comic Relief, the best comic book store in the world, located in Berkeley, California, on Shattuck Avenue, I, you know, for me, it's so hard to get there because I don't live near Berkeley anymore. And the local comic book store here where I do live is okay, but they don't have most of the indie stuff that I enjoy reading. So I don't know. I, I wonder about that. And um, I, I wondered about some other stuff, too. You know, now that Comic-Con is so big, there's now rumors, of course, that it's moving to Las Vegas. And I don't know, maybe I would go if it was in Las Vegas just because I think it would be better managed. Maybe there would be different things in different rooms, uh, um, different buildings, I should say, not different rooms. And maybe that would help to split the things up a little bit more, like maybe all the Hollywood film stuff is in one building and the comic stuff is in a different building, and then it would be a little more reasonable for the people who just want to go and find out about comics. Um, there have I've noticed that there have been a number of cons that aren't about comics, but they include comics like WizCon and DragonCon, which are science fiction conventions but have tracks that are devoted to um, comics and, and women involved in them and skepticism and things like that. Once upon a time, Ginger and I had talked about trying to organize a con that would be specifically about women's comics, and I still think that would be an awesome idea. Um, I don't have the energy to do that now, but I might one day. And maybe one day it would be fun to help out people with marketing, because I think that's what a lot of independent creators lack is marketing, and not because they don't know how to do it. They do have great ideas for it, but they lack the time and the energy and um, kind of the understanding of how marketing gets done or how you 
have a marketing campaign and how you how you measure the return on that or something like ROI, throwing in a big business school word there, return on investment. Because, I've, I mean, I do marketing for a living. That's what my company does. And what you learn is that you, you can't just buy an ad and think that's going to be all you have to do to sell something. Um, you can't just send out a bunch of emails and not gauge the response or see who is interested or expand your list of contacts. You know, it's kind of an ongoing thing. And I wonder if there are marketing companies that do this specifically for comics or for comic creators. I know that the Marvel and DC have their own marketing internally, and I've read from different people that, you know, they're idiots who don't know what they're doing, and that may or may not be true. The marketing departments could be really good, and it's just the people at the top who aren't giving them permission to do the cool stuff or who don't believe that the cool, effective stuff is actually going to help them. Um, But I wonder how successful and or how profitable you could be if you wanted to devote yourself to doing marketing for comics. Um, I don't know. It might be something I'd like to try one day because I think it would be cool. You know, I I was just thinking I actually did a little bit, and doing a podcast is marketing for comics, right, because you're reviewing them and you're trying to talk to creators. Uh, Chris Wisnia, my good friend Chris Wisnia, who does the Doris Danger comics and Tabloia, I got him introduced to the people on Point of Inquiry, which is a podcast by the Center for Inquiry. And he got to be on that, and it was really good exposure for him, and it was a fun podcast for them. And that was just like a little freelance marketing thing I did for him. But I don't know. It could be good. I wonder what you guys think about that. Um, And I also wonder what everybody thinks about Comic-Con. You know, if you went this year, would you go again? because it's only going to get more crowded. You know, they had 125,000 people this year. I wouldn't be surprised if it was at least 150,000 next year or more, depending on what kind of programming they had. And how would you feel if it got moved to Las Vegas? And how would you feel if things got split up a little bit more so that there wasn't so much crossover? I mean, I, I know that's kind of the point of the con, is that there's crossover, but it seems like the crossover is preventing a lot of people from actually enjoying the con. So, I don't know. I I think about all these things, and I don't know that I have any answers or any um, more coherent thoughts than what I'm giving you right now. Um, I do have some actual comics to review, but I think I'm just going to take a very quick break and get something to drink and come back and talk about Superman, because it's been a Superman kind of month for me.
So a while ago, I bought the graphic novel called The Death of Superman. And I bought it for a couple of reasons. The main reason I bought it was because I was at the comic book store, not Comic Relief, and they didn't have anything I wanted, and I didn't want to walk out empty-handed, so I started looking around, and I have bought many of the DC trades that collect either wacky things or serious things or just stuff that I wanted to have um, in a format where I wasn't afraid to, you know, rip my old comics. And, you know, right on the front it says, the best-selling graphic novel of all time. Is that true? I don't think it's true now, because I think Watchmen has probably sold more. But anyway, I bought it, and um, i got to say, I wasn't that blown away by this. And I'm not sure why that is, whether it's because I am reading it many, many years after it was published. In fact, it was published in 1993. 92 was when the first comics came out. And I have the perspective looking back on it after, you know, 15 years, whatever. Um, I wonder whether it's because it's just not a very good story, (laughs) whether it's because things like this have happened so many times since then, and, you know, it's happening right now with uh, Blackest Night and the death of the New Gods and everybody getting killed. So if you're going to kill Superman... And you're going to kill Batman, because I guess Batman is still running in peas, R.I.P. It doesn't matter anymore. And so maybe it did have a lot of impact at that point. But I, I read the story before I read the introduction, which actually goes into some of the... Um, sorry, not the introduction. I read the Wikipedia entry. Because <laughs> I needed some perspective. So I read it first, and then I went back and read the Wikipedia entry. And, uh, you know, it explains some of the reasons why they decided to do it. But it's it's just, it doesn't grab me. And it's so blatantly marketing. There's that word again. You know, clearly they sat down and they decided to do this because they wanted to shake things up. It wasn't because they wanted to tell a really good story. It was because they wanted something to draw people in and make them buy lots and lots of comic books and buy variant covers. And, of course, all of these stories for the death of Superman were in different comics. They weren't just in the Superman comics, so you had to go seek them out and buy them. And, you know, they figured people would buy the graphic novel when it came out afterwards anyway. And you knew Superman wasn't going to stay dead. Uh, As one of my friends says about Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk die... (laughs) He don't never stay dead, and it's the same with Superman. He's not going to stay dead. Did anybody really think that they were going to kill off DC's longest-running, almost, and most popular character, a character recognized around the world, a character with so much history and so much entwined in the DC universe? They were really just going to kill him off? Really? And not ever have another Superman comic again? Really? Did they really think that? I don't think they really thought that. So even going into it, it, it's just a, it's a gimmick. It was just a gimmick. And I would feel less bad about the gimmicky part of it if it was a better story. So um, you have Superman versus Doomsday, and 
from the comic, you don't know what Doomsday is or where he comes from or why he's so unstoppable. You really don't know anything about him. Now, of course, if you go to Wikipedia, you can find out lots of history, which seems just impossibly complicated, and I really could not understand half of it. But in this comic, you don't get any of that. You just get the fact that there's this thing called Doomsday, and Superman has a hard time beating it. And then, watch out, spoiler, um, he, Superman and Doomsday give each other super punch at the end, and they both die at the end. Okay, so the whole story is Superman and Doomsday punching each other with a little bit of extremely lame help from the Justice League. Now... Because I wasn't reading DC comic books at that point, I had no idea who this freaking Justice League was. I'm like, what? So there's there's Blue Beetle. There's Maxima. I don't know who Maxima is, although i got to say she looks a lot like Big Barda, but isn't nearly as cool. There's Guy Gardner, but he's not a Green Lantern at that point. He's just dressed like um, sort of a gay huffler. There's Ice. Um, and then there's the green one, and I can't remember what she's called right now. Um, and there's this other guy named Bloodwind. So I don't know who they are or what their powers are. Oh, and Booster is there, too, Booster Gold. I don't know what they're doing or what they're supposed to be doing, and I guess if I had been reading them, I would have known. So I, I, that is my fault for not knowing who these guys are. But um, they're lame, <laughs> And here's my main complaint, and this is the the fan nerd part of me coming out. Doomsday is super fast, and he's super strong, and nothing seems to hurt him very much. You know, they punch him, and they try to fry him with their laser beams out of their eyes, and they try to drown him, and try to do all kinds of stuff to him to defeat him, and nothing seems to work. But he can't fly. He can jump, but he can't fly. So at one point, Superman decides to put him out into space where presumably he would die or something. At least he'd be off the Earth and stop wreaking havoc. Um, he appears to breathe like other beings because he has you know, a mouth and stuff. So Superman kind of lifts him up in the air and he's streaking towards the sky. And while he's doing this, Doomsday kind of writhes around in his grip and breaks free. And nobody can catch him again to do this. And I thought, well, that's stupid. Nobody even tries to do this again. And since that is the only way that they could have possibly done it, why didn't they actually, like, make a plan for all of the flying superheroes to grab him and fling him out into space? That would have made more sense, and then Superman wouldn't have had to die. So it was like, it was obvious to me very quickly that that would have been the way to kill him. And there's not a lot of time spent on that. Um, None of the other superheroes even attempt to do this. You know, they don't say, oh, maybe we should try and fling him out in space. Um, Nobody does anything that's even close to that. I'm paging through it right now, trying to find this part where Superman flies him up into space when they're having their punching, punching, punching match. 
And he says, uh, oh, yeah. So he, Superman does at one point hurl him away from Metropolis, but doesn't hurl him straight up into the sky. He, like, throws him to some other damn place. I don't know where it is. Oh, here we go. So Superman is underneath him and pushing him up into the sky. And... Um, He's clearly trying to, to put him into outer space. I'm trying to think if there's a little thought bubble where he says that. No, he doesn't even say that. Um, but that's what he's trying to do. And the exposition police here played by Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are explaining what's going on. Um, Doomsday's rampage in Park Ridge, Park Ridge was cut short when Superman grabbed the monster, rocketing him away from Metropolis toward the vacuum of space. End paragraph, Lois says. So they're, they're, you know, pretty far above Metropolis right now. And as I said, somehow Doomsday managed to twist around and kick Superman in the stomach. They're in midair, by the way. And Superman thinks, creatures as agile as it is strong, twisted away, couldn't hold him, kicked me, can't breathe. There's nothing in his mind but anger. And then Doomsday just kind of drops down to Earth again. And that's it. And nobody ever tries to do this again, including Superman. You know, if he had gotten, like, a little better leverage, or maybe if he had grabbed Doomsday by the arm and flung him up and then caught up with him and then flung him up again and repeated the process until he got him out into space, that probably would have worked. I think that would have worked really well. And I don't buy the crap about, well, in the heat of the moment and in the heat of the battle... You know, Superman didn't have time to think about that, and he had to think about all the citizens of Metropolis. Oh, come on. He's Superman. Of course he's going to think of that, especially since he was on his way to succeeding and, you know, just didn't get to finish the job right there. So that was a huge plot hole letdown thing for me, which just made it seem a lot less believable when they're going on and on about how he's unstoppable and he's unbeatable and there's nothing anybody can do. No, there is something that people can do. They can throw him into space. Um, sorry, it just made me very ranty. And then the thing about Supergirl, I totally didn't understand that at all with Lex Luthor and stuff, and I don't care, so I wasn't going to bother to plow through all the Wikipedia stuff about that, so whatever. She looks like she's Supergirl, and then Doomsday punches her, and she turns into Prody, you know, Chameleon Boy's little friend, or something like that. But she turns into a blob, so whatever. Um, and then there's Lois, who is basically worse than useless. You know, the whole story starts off <clears throat> with a plot of her being the investigative journalist against some people who live in the sewers, and they have some name. I can't remember what it is. Um... And she goes down there to figure out what's going to happen. And, I mean, she's going to try to, to talk to these people. And some of them are monsters or whatever. Um, Closter. This guy's name is the Closter. <laughs> um, anyway, Underworld got war machines. Yeah, these guys live in the Underworld. So she goes down there, and within literally two seconds of going into the subways or the sewers or whatever, she gets captured and her hands are tied behind her back. <laughs> so, good Lois. I, I think you probably could have done a little better than that. Or maybe taken some backup with you. Who knows? So, Lois's purpose in this story is to um, be upset and 
gives Superman a kiss and then mourn over him at the end. She really doesn't have a whole lot else to do. Uh, and, of course, they had established at this point that she knew that Superman was Clark Kent and they were going to get married and everything. So that made it extra poignant. Um, and, oh, God, she really just doesn't do anything. And then at the very end... Um, she's trying to insert herself into the fight and he's trying, Superman's trying to make sure that um, she doesn't get hurt and he's thinking and blah, 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 and then they have these giant punches. And then he dies and, you know, she um, is cradling him, she is cradling him in her arms, saying, please hang on, the paramedics will be here any second, please. And then Superman says, Doomsday, is he, is he? And Lois says, you stopped him, you saved us all. Now relax until, and then the narration says, but it's too late, for this is the day that a Superman died. And there's Superman being all dead, and there's Lois, who's weeping over his body with her very, very pointy fingernails clutched into claws. And there's Jimmy taking a picture of her weeping over Superman's body. And his cape is sort of um, on a stick, and it looks like a flag that's flying. So, you know. <laughs> uh, the last issue of this, where all this happens from an artistic point of view, is very cool, because every page was a full-page spread, which is really neat, and I'm not sure if they've done that before. Um, let's see. Dan Jurgens did the words and the pictures. And then Brett Breeding did the finished art. So that whole issue is cool. And I have to say, the first time I read it through, I kind of didn't notice that every page was a full page. And then this was pointed out to me, I guess, via Wikipedia. And I went back and I was like, oh, yeah, that is really cool. And it's good. You know, it's supposed to be the climax of the fight and everything that's happening. So it's, it's worthy of devoting each page as one full panel of art. And the art is, is really cool and powerful, although it is kind of weird to see Superman with a hairy chest, but whatever. I, I don't mind that. Um, some of the other art is not so good. In, in general, um, Doomsday is drawn with varying degrees of goofiness. Now, this penciler, John um, Bogdanov, I guess is his name. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not really sure. I'm not too fond of the way he draws Superman's face, especially in some of these action shots. And he did the art for several of these issues. And uh, Superman's face, he looks more like Batman. He looks very um, snarly and got a kind of a hooked nose. And his, when he's gritting his teeth, all you see are the teeth and he has no lips. And he just looks, Arr. he doesn't really look like Superman to me. Um, and, you know, the Justice League, as I said, they're fairly useless. They kind of drop out of the action about halfway through, and then they show up again at the end. Now, why is it that when Superman is, you know, punching this guy to death, nobody else is showing up to help him either? And maybe that's just my lack of knowledge of the DC Universe at that time. Where the hell is Batman? And couldn't he have made it over to just maybe lend a hand or a little strategy or something like that? And um, I thought there was, you know, like, where's Wonder Woman, and where's Aquaman, and where's other people? I don't know. It seems like if something like Doomsday is having a punching match with Superman that lasts, you know, through how many of her issues are in this, 
there should be more people, more superheroes involved. And I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get to see more superheroes. But maybe that was the point, that it was all Superman all the time, and then he dies, and then he comes back, because, of course, we knew he was always going to come back. Um, and I read somewhere that the, um, I was going to say trick, the method by which he comes back is now somehow being recalled with the whole Batman runs in peas thing, but I don't know that that's true because I'm not reading those comics. So anyway, that's Superman. Superman, the death of Superman. Superman's dead, but not really. Of course he's not really dead. Nobody thought he was going to die. Anyway, let me talk about some Superman that I really did like, and this was a similar sort of purchase, and it's called Superman in the 60s. Um, and again, I was at the comic book store, really wanted to get a trade, really wanted some Superman stuff, so I got this one. And this, as you know, is much more up my alley. So it's a pretty good selection of stories, and there's quite a few in here, um, from the early 60s to the late 60s. So the first couple stories are like 61, and the last are, uh, there's 64, I guess. So that doesn't quite go through the end of the 60s. Uh, there's one from 68. And... These are typical Silver Age crack stories where all kinds of really wacky stuff happens. Um, and there's constant plotting by Lois Lane to get him into trouble. And then there's more plotting by um, Supergirl Linda Lee Danvers to find him a wife in one instance and some other stuff. And there's a story in which he gets turned into a giant baby. And then there's the story where he goes back to Krypton because somehow when Superman was flying through space, he flew too fast, and he actually went through the time barrier and somehow ended up back at Krypton. And because fate is the way it is, he gets sent back to Earth and back through the time barrier again. But, you know, it, it was I like that kind of stuff. I like these imaginary stories or stuff that possibly sort of could have happened. Um, they're just imaginative in of a really uh, fun, free way that I'm not sure we see enough of anymore. Uh, It's like, I hate to make this comparison, but when you're trying to do a creative thing with a group of people and you have, you know, a brainstorming session. So you all sit down and you're trying to come up with ideas and there's rules. And one of the rules is usually nobody gets to say no to an idea. You just say what comes into your mind and it might be a crappy idea or it might be a great idea. But Nobody's ideas, nobody's allowed to say, nah, that sucks right up front. You have to write everything down. And it feels like for the Superman stories in the 60s, that's what they were doing. The writers were sitting down in a big room, and they were just coming up with anything and everything, just going crazy and saying, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? What if Superman went back to Krypton and fell in love with a girl and turned out to be the love of his life and her initials had two L's and, you know, and then he got shot back in a rocket to Earth. What about that? Wouldn't that be cool? What about um, Superman dying? Oh, my God. There's a story in here about Superman dying, except, you know what, he doesn't really die at the end. It was kryptonite. I'll let you in on that. And we have Supergirl in there and the Legion of the Superheroes in there. And then Monel gets to save him from dying. What about a story where Lois Lane adopts Linda Lee Danvers as her daughter? What about that? Just, it's all what about? What what if, what if, what if? Like, let's just do anything. What if Superman and Lex Luthor go to a planet where Superman doesn't have powers and they punch each other? They have a punching match. <laughs> 
what about, um, yeah, and let's call it the super duel. That's what it's called. What about if Red K makes Superman lose his memory and a woman falls in love with him just for himself and not because he's Superman and her initials are not two L's? Let's turn Jimmy Olsen into a giant turtle monster. That would be cool. Yeah, it would be cool. How about another Bizarro story? Let's have it be about Bizarro crypto. (laughs) So anyway, that's just a a sampling of what you find in there. But it's the the let's not say no to an idea thing that I really like about it. There's a genuine joy and delight in the stories where the artists and the writers just felt like they could go anywhere and do anything. And they weren't, I don't know, were they worried about sales? I don't think they were at that point. Were they worried about making the whole universe be internally consistent? Yeah, to a certain extent they probably were. But it seems like they were having fun. They were really, really having fun. And making these ideas work, that's that's sort of where I, I feel the creative joy and creative juice that comes out of these stories is that the writers and the artists took these amazingly ridiculous, cracktastic stories and said, how can we make this work? How can we turn this into a story that will go in a comic book that we can put on the newsstand? Let's do it. And they did it. And they did it month after month after month after month. And some of the stories were totally goofy and didn't make any sense, like the bizarro stories. Some of them were really well-written and touching, like the story of Superman going back to Krypton. It's a really good story. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Um, it, it, there's just stuff about it that makes me feel good when I read it. Um, and the very first story in here is Superman's origin story, which apparently we hadn't seen before, 1961, where we find out what happened with his parents and how the Kents adopted him and how you know he learned to fly with balloons attached to him. I still don't get the whole crypto thing. So crypto was launched as a test before little Cal was sent off in his rocket, right? So Jor-El puts Crypto in a rocket and puts him into space. And somehow, through um, comic book magic, his rocket gets off course. And he floats in space for as long as it takes Superman to grow up, super, super baby to grow up to be like 16 years old. What did he eat? Was he in suspended animation that whole time? Where did his poop go? (laughs) Inquiring minds really want to know. They kind of don't deal with it in this story. Um, Superman sees a rock... Superboy, sorry. Sees a rocket crashing, um, and uh, Crypto comes out of the rocket, and Superboy reads a note. A note? And, okay, it says... This Kryptonese record put in the rocket by my father reveals how Crypto's experimental rocket went adrift in space to land finally on Earth. Okay. How did Jor-El put a note in the rocket after it went adrift? Um, Was there a little printer inside? I mean, Superboy's holding a piece of paper. So there's a little printer inside the rocket, and after it got knocked adrift, Jor-El sent um, a text message to the rocket and then the printer, the little HP printer in the rocket, printed it out so that whoever found crypto would know what had happened. Is that what happened? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making shit up. But anyway, I liked Superman in the 60s a lot better than I liked the death of Superman. And maybe it's just because I don't like it when people die. And even knowing he was going to be resurrected, 
did not make that a better story for me. I think if I'm going to have my pick, I'm going to choose a story where um, Superman loses his memory and gets revived by Laurie the Mermaid in an underwater bubble. That's the story I want to read. Just a few more things to wrap it up. Um, I went to see G-Force, which is the movie with the spy hamsters. No, they're not hamsters. They're guinea pigs. That's right. It was weird, but it was funny. Uh, it was less funny than I thought it was going to be. It was more like an action-adventure movie that just happened to have animated leads. I thought the mice were the best part, honestly, and you see them in the commercial a little bit, and they have some more screen time in the movie, and they're pretty funny. I do think that all movies should be in 3D from now on. <laughs> just screw it. Make all movies in 3D. Oh, they did show an ad. Now, I think I had mentioned once before that Toy Story 3 is going to come out finally, but in October, October? Yeah, October, they're going to be showing... Um, Toy Story 1 and 2 in 3D in the theater as a special double feature. And they showcased a little bit of that 3D uh, in the trailer for it. And, oh, it looked so good. So I am very excited. Those are two of my most favorite movies. So if you like those movies, I would strongly encourage you to plan to see Toy Story 1 and 2 double feature in the movies in 3D coming in October. Um, I have been spending more time on the other podcast that I do, which is the Star Trek one. And it's not even I'm spending time on the podcast. It's that we've been doing live stuff. So I just wanted to say, if you're in the Bay Area and you ever wanted to see me live doing some stuff, we have a site for that. That's just at lookathisbutt.com. And that's where we post all our live appearances stuff. We did some stuff at Shatfest, which is the once-a-year William Shatner Film Festival held by our good friend Will the Thrill. And it was really, really funny, and it was fun to be up on stage in front of a bunch of people who are crazy Shatner fans. And then we also did a, a little live comedy sketch at, uh, what the hell is it called? The San Francisco Theater Festival, which was at Yerba Buena Gardens. So, and there were people there who listen, who are Trek fans, who listen to the Trek podcast. So anyway, I'm just saying, if you want to come and see me, that's where you can see me. And uh, you should also come follow me on Twitter, and it's just my name, Lena Taylor, on Twitter, because everything that I post to the comics blog gets put up there, and the Trek stuff gets put up there too, plus additional tweets that I just do normally. Like the other day when I went to the dollar store and um, just bought, like, all these bags worth of really cool shit for a dollar. It was great. If you're not watching Phineas and Ferb, you really should be watching Phineas and Ferb. I don't understand how they managed to keep that show so good and so fresh and so funny, but I am never disappointed with an episode. And apparently you can watch them online. I think if you go to the Disney website, they have whole episodes online. So if you haven't seen it and you want to see some incredible weekly animated stuff, please watch Phineas and Ferb. You will not regret it one little bit. Oh, and I have a little bit of a rant to close out on, because I know you all like it so much when I rant about stuff. I read the daily paper. I read the daily paper daily, in fact. Uh, and my paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, has two whole pages worth of comics, and I read them every day, and I read almost all of them every day, because they're in the paper, and I'm on the train, and it's good to read them. And some are much better than others. I love mutts. It's one of my most favorite things. And Doonesbury is there. And uh, lot, lots of other things. Canderville, which is a really good newish comic that they carry now. 
So, for a long time, I read For Better or For Worse. And there has been a huge amount of internet controversy over that because people get addicted to it, and then all these internet groups spring up where people are complaining about it. So I was reading it and reading it and reading it, and the creator of it finally decided that she was going to end it. And she had written a storyline that was going to come to a natural end with the wedding of one of the main characters. And she did. So there was a wedding, and you got to see a little bit of flash forward to the lives of the main characters, and that was all good. But she didn't end it there. For various personal reasons, I think she decided to reboot it which is very unusual for a newspaper comic. So she went back pretty much to the beginning of where she had started her storylines with the main character, whose name is Ellie. And, you know, I'm really getting tired of all these women named Ellie. <laughs> there was the one in Up, and then there was the elephant in Ice Age, and there's Ellie in the comics. Just pick a different name, okay? And she's married, and she has two little kids, and at this point in time, she's a housewife, and her husband is a dentist. And I never went back and read the original strips that she drew, I guess, 20 years ago. But I'm guessing that these are pretty close to being the same because I'm reading it and it feels like it's the late 60s or the mid-70s or something. And it's, it's a train wreck. It really is. All of the humor is based on the fact that Ellie is a housewife and she's stuck at home and is constantly trying to please her husband and complaining about how much he never helps around the house, and she's always worried about how much weight she's gaining, and acting like every stereotype of the feminine mystique housewife that you've ever heard. She never has any fun. She never enjoys herself. She never enjoys her kids. She never seems to have a tender moment with her husband. Um... She never enjoys anything. She's always mad. She's always complaining. She's always just frustrated with her life. And it's pathetic. It's sad and it's depressing. And then you come to the punchline, which is usually her husband laughing at something that she's said or done or laughing about how hard her life is. And he is the typical stereo sorry, stereotypical husband who never plays with his kids. Um isn't ever home, except he comes home at night and he expects to have dinner on the table, never helps around the house, and the times that he does help, he totally screws things up. So it's, you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy, I'm not good at this, and that I won't be good at this, so you'll never ask me to do it again. And, in fact, just this past week, there were several horrendous strips about him with his single guy friend who's saying to him, oh, you're henpecked, you're henpecked, you don't do anything that you want to do for yourself. If your wife doesn't like the way you're dressed, you change it. And he agrees with that, basically. And then the, the punchline for the week was saying him thinking to himself something about, yeah, I know what henpecked really means. It's guys who live with their mothers. Ooh, that's nice. That's a real slam, isn't it? Guys who live with their mothers are henpecked because, obviously, if you live with your mother and you're a guy, you never get to do anything the way you want to. Um, because your mother would never let you do anything because, you know, all moms, well, all women, I guess, are completely controlling and have to tell their guys what to do because that's just the natural order of things. I mean, come on! It's awful! It's the worst kind of retro-sexist crap 
that I've ever seen, and I cannot believe she's doing this on a regular basis. You know, I was thinking about this the other day and kind of fuming to myself, like, why the fuck am I still reading this? And I do. I read it every day. That maybe um, there's some, there's a, like a, a thing that's going to happen halfway through the year that Ellie is going to snap. She's going to snap her tether <laughs> and kill her keeper. Like, seriously, sometime she's just going to get fed up with it, and she's going to murder her husband and bury him in the back garden and put his train set on top of his grave. Or something. I mean, does she really think she can spin this out for another 20 years doing the same tired, sexist, misogynistic, domestic comedy over again? Oh, it's awful. Somebody must be reading it and enjoying it because it's still in the paper. And I just don't know about that. I just think I think it's awful. It's the worst thing in the world. And there it is. And I guess I should probably try to make myself feel better by going online to some of the, the communities that complain and bitch about this because I'm sure they're all wanting to kill themselves right about now. So I don't understand it. I really don't. And the, the creator, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, Lynn, whatever it is, um, has a website and a blog and stuff, but I can't be bothered to go read it to see if she has any defense of this. But, oh, man, it's bad. And if you don't believe me, go read it yourself. And you'll find out. It's it's like the Lockhorns. It's worse than the It's like Andy Cap. You know? Comics that were stuck in 1959. Oh, just appalling. Anyway, I hope that's been enough of a rant. Are you happy that you got to hear me rant about something that really made me piss off? Because it really did. I'll be back with some happier, gentler stuff next time, including Jellybee, which is my new favorite comic. So in the meantime, as always, go watch some Phineas and Ferb. You have to. (laughs) 